Merry Christmas, Device Nation. I hope you've had a happy Hanukkah as well. This is your home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of the hickory honey ham in times of kale. And a lot of you may have recognized the hickory honey ham reference there. That is from one of my favorite Christmas movies, Christmas with the Cranks. Little note about kale. Here's a pro tip for you because I know a lot of you are going to be cooking with your family this holiday season. If you stir just a little coconut oil into your kale while you're cooking it, it makes it so much easier to scrape it out of the pan and into the trash. (laughs) Well, you won't need any coconut oil to get today's interview down because it's just an incredible conversation. A very deep CV, former Nice Society president, former AUKUS president, founder of Operation Walk in Denver, implant designer, research publications that just go on and on. A lot of great papers out there. A lot of awards, Nice Society Award, Coventry Award, John Insall Award, Ranawat Award, Clinical Biomechanics Award, James Rand Young Investigators Award. Just an amazing career and an amazing person. We are so honored to have on Device Nation today, Dr. Doug Dennis. Good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Dennis, it is no accident that we are hearing from you out of Denver, Colorado, as your contributions to the orthopedic space are a mile high. I look forward to asking you about the attuned knee, the hip-spine relationship, gap balancing versus measured resection, kinematics. But first, let's go back to Toledo, Ohio. What was it like growing up in the dentist household, and what put you on the path to a career in medicine? I, I was born and raised in Toledo. I'm very, very proud of my Buckeye roots, um, my Midwest U.S. roots, and I was an only child, and I had a father who really was very, very focused that I got a good education. Uh, My father was kind of raised in poverty and didn't have opportunity. And I mean, he, he picked strawberries at 10 cents a quart to buy his mother her first refrigerator, just to give you an idea. And, and my dad, he was salutatorian of his class, a brilliant guy, but truly didn't have the opportunities to go to college and that sort of thing. So he uh, was very focused. I know I grew up, it's not if I'm going to go to college, it's uh, where are you going to go to college? So that was always kind of a, a, a driving force. And I went ahead and was a tennis player and paid my way through college on a tennis scholarship. So I, I went to Bowling Green State University because that's where I got a scholarship to play. And, you know, in that era, you declare your major before you even walk on campus, whereas my children and my eventual uh, grandchildren, you know, they, they don't have to declare a major for a couple of years. They take their core courses and then eventually determine their major. Well, I was a math and science person, and 
But my thought process is, well, I can never get into medical school because in my era, one out of 7.7 who tried to get in, got in. And my thought process is I, I'm not going to start in pre-med because I could never get into medical school. And my dad was in business, so I declared my major in business. And after my first year, I, I had a, a very good grade point, And I started thinking, you know, I'm a good math and science person. And if you ever looked at my SAT scores in, in the math and science, I'm off the charts in one direction. And kind of in the verbal, I was off the charts in the other direction. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I'm doing pretty well here in college. I think I'm going to enter the pre-dental program. And, you know, I couldn't get into medical school. That was my thought. I kept thinking that. But maybe I could become a dentist. So I always, you know, my mother was such a wonderful person and always, you know, taught me to be kind and care for people. And that's why I think I was attracted, you know, to something in healthcare. So my second year, I switched to the pre-dental program. And then at the end of my sophomore year, I slipped on a wet tennis court competing and I tore my right knee up and I had to have surgery. And there was a surgeon, Jerry Sutherland in Toledo, Ohio, who was my surgeon. And after he operated on me, made rounds the next day, and he said, well, what are you going to do with your life? And I said that I'm going to be a dentist. And in his gruff voice, he said, ah, heck, you're not going to be a dentist. He said, when you're well, why don't you come and spend a day with me in the operating room? And I obviously was fascinated with that opportunity. And I said, geez, Dr. Sutherland, that'd be great. And I took him up on that. And I promise you, I was in the operating room 20 minutes. He was fixing an open tibial fracture. And I was so fascinated. And with within 20 minutes, I'm going to be a doctor. Wow. And I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And that was a very honest reporting of a life-changing event for me. And I totally changed my focus. I switched to the pre-med program. Dr. Sutherland got me a job on weekends uh, as a phlebotomist. I, I drive from you know the 40 minutes from my university to Toledo Hospital get up at four in the morning and, you know, be there by five 30 and draw blood on Saturdays and Sundays. And, uh, and I was fascinated by that. And then eventually I got a job where I was washing surgical instruments in the operating room. You know, that is not one of the most complex jobs to do. And I could kind of do it faster than most of the other employees and boy, I'd get them done real quick. And boy, then I'd sneak out and I'd look through that small square glass of the operating room door uh, to watch surgery. And so that's kind of how my path started that I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. 
Then from there, I was lucky enough to get into medical school, and I kept my focus throughout the entire time that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And, you know, I'll never forget because, you know, when you're younger, you have insecurities. And my first day in medical school, I had a guy from Johns Hopkins on my right and a guy from Harvard on my left. Oh, wow. And I'm kind of sitting there shrinking down into my chair thinking, oh my gosh. And um, proud to say my scores ended up better than both of theirs over, over the years. And so those were confidence building things for me. And uh, I applied to residencies and went to uh, Ohio State for my uh, medical training and, and residencies. And I have been so lucky to have crossed paths with very brilliant people that have indirectly mentored my decisions. And in my residency, I did one of my three-month electives with the, the, the late Dr. Thomas Mallory. And in the 80s and 90s, Tom was doing more joint replacement than anyone in the world. He was truly the one that introduced the concept of having two operating rooms and efficiency of surgery, being able to, you know, do multiple surgeries uh, and be done at uh, 12 o'clock and then in the office at one o'clock, at one o'clock. And he had a very great influence on me. And I, I still have what I call the Malloryisms that I kind of live by. And one of my favorites is Tom always said, you never get to the moon unless you hop into the spaceship first. You know, I've tried to live my life that way. And coming from someone who nearly didn't go into medicine because he thought he could never get in to the career I've had, I have a total change in how I think. And Tom Mallory really played a very big role in that. And one of my things that I love to do is mentor, you know, the the young, bright people who may think that they might want to go into medicine. And I can proudly say that I've got the best job in the world. And and to to encourage those people to go into medicine, because obviously economically, we are not paid you know, nearly as handsomely as we were before. And, you know, I'm, I'm paid less than 50% for doing a, a Medicare total hip today versus what I got paid when I did my first one in 1986. And so, you know, I worry that the economic uh, benefits of the eighties and nineties, uh, versus today might affect the young brightest of the bright from going into medicine. So that's one of my life's tasks is to be able to interact with them. You know, in our research department, um, we always usually have about two uh, of our research team that have our people that want to get into medical school. 
and they work with us often for a year or two and often get their names on some research papers, which will help their ability to get in. And, and it's really neat. I think, I think we have spawned three that have started in our research department and ended up uh, are now in medical schools. So things like that are, are pretty meaningful for me. We have a whole generation now that knows nothing of the usual and customary fee. Remember being able to charge that. Yeah, but I'll tell you, um, I think most people that do what I do, if we got paid five bucks for doing a total hip, we'd do it with a smile on our face because of the, you know, it's it's such a great field if, if you look at, at arthroplasty because, you know, there are certain operations in orthopedics that you can do it the best way it could be done anywhere in the country, but maybe only help the patient 50 or 60% because that's all the operation has to offer. And if you look at joint replacement, boy, I'll tell you, if it is done well, the patient rehabs properly, there's no 100% successful operation in the world, but boy, joint replacement comes very, very high as far as success rates and often fun to do operations where the the magnitude of change in a patient's life is so substantial. And that's why it's so much fun, you know, to do joint replacement. I'm, I'm at a part of my career and at an age that I don't have to work anymore. And I'll be very honest, I love what I do. And I always tell my fellows, because I've had partners that retired, uh, you know, relatively early, and they weren't at all involved in the academic side of orthopedics as I have been. And I think that's such an advantage to keep my, my intellectual stimulation up. It's, it's so exciting. It's always changing. Like I told my wife, you know, I'm not thinking of retiring at all. I can't imagine on Monday morning not walking into the operating room to help someone. And I feel very privileged, you know, to do that. Hmm. Going back to my father, uh, and you can tell he's very special in my life. And, and I was lucky to have him for 92 years. And since he didn't have the opportunity, I think he kind of lived his life a bit through me. And when they would come out to Denver uh, to visit us, I would always take my dad in the operating room and he just loved it. And, you know, we'd put him on a stool and, and he'd just observe everything and he loved it. One day driving home uh, from a day that he and I were in the operating room together, he said, you really should realize how lucky you are because I've observed you a number of times. And it's very clear that every day that you go to work, it's a new challenge. And my dad worked 43 years for the Standard Oil Company of Ohio in various positions, credit manager and this and that. And But the last 10 years, he was kind of in the same position. And I think his job got very, very stale. And he really pointed out to me how my job will never become stale. And 
again, I feel so lucky to be able to do it. I was looking at some of your accomplishments, outstanding high school senior, captain of your tennis team, senior man of the year at Bowling Green. You really excelled at everything you were involved with. I'm imagining that your father had something to do with that, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I had great parents and, you know, my mom, I think my, my father pushed me and a lot of times, you know, if you push your children too much, actually it becomes counterproductive. And yet my mom, boy, she was the great lover and hugger that maybe when dad kind of pushed me and maybe aggravated me a bit, I always had mom to cry on her shoulder a little bit and pat me on the back. And I always felt the parents that I had were such a great combo because they they balanced each other out well in raising me. So let's go to Denver for a minute. One of the five original investors in the Steamboat Ski Area and author of the 1958 Landmark paper, Experimental Investigations of Ligamentous Healing, was the legendary Dr. Matt Clayton. Uh, you did a fellowship under his tutelage. What was that experience like? You know, that's another person who has played such a big role in my life. And I know I'm talking about my family a lot, but it it reflects on my career. Um, My wife has rheumatoid arthritis and it was diagnosed at at, uh, age 19. And she's got two artificial knees and she's got a artificial hip joint. And so I always had early on a big interest in rheumatoid arthritis. And Matt Clayton was certainly one of the premier people in the world as far as, you know, a surgeon doing rheumatoid surgery. So when I looked at fellowships, I was very attracted to Mac. And one of my attending surgeons at Ohio State University, uh, Dr. Phil Jeffers, had done his fellowship with Dr. Clayton. So I got exposure to the name Matt Clayton from Phil. And so that's how my journey developed to come out with Mac. And, you know, he did the the first total hip west of the Mississippi Um It's kind of interesting in the early years of hip replacement, uh, bone cement was approved in Canada and not yet approved in the U.S. And and Mac had had gone to some of the centers. He he's a Harvard man. He trained at Harvard and and obviously had had been trained by Ottawa Frank and some of the early greats and in joint replacement. And kind of the lore that you hear is he and one of his partners went up to Canada and got a bunch of bone cement and kind of smuggled it back into America and used that to do the the first hip replacement west of the Mississippi. I'm not uh, totally sure if that's accurate, but that's the that's the lore. And um, he was a very, very good surgeon. And, but, you know, he did it all. He, you know, in his era, he did rheumatoid hand. He did, you know, the rheumatoid feet as well as hip replacement, knee replacement, wrist replacement. Uh, Even early in his career, he did some of the cervical spine surgery that rheumatoids get. And I've always had, uh, you know, a big interest in rheumatoid surgery, but, uh, you know, today I do so little of it. 
you know, I did my fellowship with Mac, uh, 84, 85, and then was lucky enough that Tom Mallory had asked me to join him in practice back in Columbus. And I did that. And about a year later, Mac called me and he said, I'm going to retire in the next year or two. And I want you to be the one to come back and take over my practice. Well, I always thought I was born in Ohio, raised in Ohio, and going to live and die in Ohio. Uh, The year that my family spent in Denver, we loved it out here. And I just felt it was such a great opportunity for me. So that is how I journeyed back to Denver. And he, he was such a great mentor for me. And I remember my, I think my daughter was four years of age at that time when I was a fellow. And the first time she was ever on skis, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Clayton had us up to their condominium at Steamboat. And we put Kendall on skis for the first time. And uh, they were such gracious hosts and wonderful people. A lot of his articles, I, I actually, he's autographed them and uh, some of them hang in my office today as a good reminder. I saw references in the literature to the Clayton total hip, and I can honestly say I've never seen a picture of it and what it looked like. Can you uh, illuminate my, my thinking on that? It was a cemented femoral stem, mm-hmm. a I-beamed type of stem. It was a longer one. Somewhat similar, if you go way back uh, to the Richards days, somewhat similar to the Buck 32. Um, but it was a cemented stem. What kind of made it different is it was a bit longer than, you know, the Charnley and some of the other early ones. And uh, I mean, I, I still follow patients that are 30 years past when Mac did their cemented total hip with a Uh, with the Clayton prosthesis, and it still works for them today. You've got an amazing group out there. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with Dr. Jason Jennings, a real rock star and exciting stuff that he's working on. Tell me about your practice within that group these days. You know, what are you doing and what what do you really enjoy case-wise? I have four partners, Todd Miner and Charlie Yang and Jason Jennings and our newest partner, Dr. Lindsay Kleeman. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm so proud of all of them uh, for what they do. They're highly skilled surgeons. They're compassionate hearts to, to really take good care of people. We all are fellowship trained and pretty much Colorado Joint Replacement, our, our business name, uh, says what we are, that pretty much all we do is, is primary and revision hip replacement. My younger partners, you know, take emergency room call, but most of the trauma we do are are broken hips and those sort of things. Uh, We're a very academic practice in a private practice setting. You know, the private-demics type of of opportunity. It is, I, I think, kind of a a wonderful situation if if you can accomplish it. I think last year we published, we look at book chapters as well as scholarly journal articles. I I think we had about 23 publications. So you certainly can do it. And, you know, a lot of times I have often felt that, you know, at a university center, it takes twice as long to do half as much. 
and um, and all of us have put our money where our mouth is as far as to fund our research, and that's important to us. And so we have a very academic practice. We educate two fellows each year. If you're ever out in Denver, I'd love to take you on a tour of our office. Uh, I call it the fellowship wall, and we have a picture of all the fellows that we have trained, and uh, I make a habit to walk by that every day and look at it, And because I'll tell you, everybody's picture there would take a bullet for me, and we take a bullet for them. It's, it's uh, certainly, for me, one of the most important things of my practice is educating fellows, and we've been fortunate. I think we we really do try very, very hard to really educate them. We don't, I always joke with the fellows, I don't, I don't need a fellow to get my work done because I probably get home an hour or two later uh, because of the fellows, because I want to educate them. And it is um, sure. because of that, we really have been able to draw very high level uh, fellows from very high level programs. And, you know, if you're, if you're the major league hitting coach and everybody that's coming up from the minors is already hitting 350, makes you a pretty good hitting coach. And, and we're kind of, <laughs> kind of like one of those hitting coaches that are getting all the, the, the players that are hitting 350. And I, I really enjoy that. A lot of my fulfillment comes from that. 34 years in the operating room. If you were sitting with a couple guys and girls around a campfire, any notable patients or cases that, that you would want to share? I've done a fair number of people that I won't mention their names, but some pretty well-known people throughout the country. And But really, the ones that are the most memorable for me are the ones that we have done on our Operation Walk mission work. And back in 2003, and let me, let me go back, I knew early this decade that I wanted to do some mission work. And, you know, I checked with my church and investigated and a lot of the mission opportunities were a three month commitment or a six month commitment. Many of them were orthopedic trauma. I don't think I put a, a rod down a broken femur in 30 years. So that really wasn't my skill set. I know you've certainly heard of Larry Dore, you know, one of the icons in joint arthroplasty. And Larry had started what he called Operation Walk. And it's where you go into underdeveloped countries and do free hip and knee replacement for the poorest of the poor. And Larry's been a good friend for a number of years. And so I asked Larry, I said, geez, is there any way that I could go as one of your surgeons on one of these trips? And, and Larry says, sure, you know, in, in the boisterous, uh, energetic uh, way that only Larry can, can say it. So in 2002, I went with him to Managua, Nicaragua, and I was there two days and it's another life-changing event for me. And I said, there is going to be an Operation Walk Denver. And I went home, and the help that we received from Jerry Ward and other team members of Larry's team to help get us off the ground. And, and it, it was uh, it, it's kind of a funny thing, because to, to fundraise to 
do an Operation Walk mission when you've never done it and you don't have anything to show for yourself is kind of a hard thing. And when we go on these trips, we typically do 65, 70 joint replacements. We bring everything from the first drug to the last Band-Aid, about eight tons of cargo, a team of about 55 healthcare providers, you know, both the medical doctors, the surgeons, the therapists, the scrub nurses, you know, you can add them all up. So it it takes a a fair amount of, of cash to to make that happen. And in our early years, got some support from Larry and my wife really believed in the cause and we we supported it. And, and then after we had uh, done that for a few years, our fundraising improved to the point where our fundraising would, would fund a trip a year. And so boy, that was wonderful. And then I went to my wife and I said, honey, you know, we've got one funded. I want to do it twice. And so again, we kind of started over again and, uh, and Operation Walk Denver has just grown and grown. We did our first mission in 2003. We've now done over 1,900 free hip and knee replacements uh, for the poorest of the poor. I know this is a long answer to your question, but some of my most memorable cases have been on Op Walk because the severity of the arthritic generation is many magnitudes greater than what I typically see in Denver. I actually tell my Denver patients that I think you're going to get a better operation because of my op-walk experience, because, you know, I've, I've learned so much tackling 30 degree varus knee deformities and hips that are fused or the femoral heads eroded away and and, you know, a lot of these uh, most memorable cases have been the young people with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I don't do a lot of rheumatoid surgery in Denver because with the new medications, the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, the DMARDs, uh, they really are preventing joint destruction. But when we go on our missions, I see patients ravaged from rheumatoid arthritis, and obviously the disease hasn't changed. The disease is still there, but they just don't get any treatment. I'll share just one patient story with you, and it's Johanna. And and Johanna is lives in a mountain village in Honduras. And I believe Honduras is the second poorest country in the Northern Hemisphere. And the first mission we went there the previous year in the entire country, they had done 45 joint replacements. And we did 70 of them in three and a half days. So that gives you a little idea of the conditions. And um, she kind of lived in this remote village. She had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. She could barely walk. Both of her hips were destroyed. Both of her knees were destroyed. And when she did walk, she was all hunched over because her body was kind of like molded to a chair with hip flexion contractures, knee flexion contractures. And it was lucky that year that both of our trips were going to Honduras. And she was severely depressed and, and later shared with me that she was contemplating suicide because she had become such a, a burden to her family. And on our spring trip, I replaced both of her hips. And on our fall trip, I replaced both of her knees. 
She now walks as well as I do. And every trip that we go to Honduras, she comes down from her mountain village, sleeps on a cot in the ward with all of the other patients and stays there 24 seven at the hospital to take care of the patients because she is so grateful. And she is now actually taking English lessons. She wants to work for Dr. Bouchon, who is the orthopedist we work with there, to work in his office. And she keeps prodding me that she's learning English, so I have to learn her Spanish. And that's on my bucket list to do. But uh, she's one of my favorite stories. And and I, and I just have, have one other on a gal who was 37, was born with a congenital hip dislocation. And her, her only question to me was, if you fix my hip, could I have a baby? Because with her totally dislocated hip, you know, they, they get scissoring of that hip. And she could not spread her legs far enough apart to have a vaginal delivery and had no money to have a cesarean section. So that was her question. And I fixed her hip, and we went back to Managua two years later. And guess what I got to hold? I got to hold her little girl. And oh, wow. so I, I could spend the next three hours with stories like this, but um, Operation Walk is, is one of my most important things in my life to do. It has been almost 100% whenever I've asked a surgeon the question, I just asked you, memorable patients over your career, if they are in any way connected with Operation Walk, the story always goes to that organization and their experiences on trips there. So just amazing. You were president of AUKUS back in 2002. A lot has changed since then. What are the, some of the biggest challenges and opportunities you think these organizations are facing going forward? Well, when I was president of, of AUKUS, I think it had about six to 800 members at that point. And I believe now they're, they're approaching 2,000 members. So it has been a great organization. Uh, certainly one of my greatest honors was to, to be able to lead it that, uh, that, at that time. And all of those who have followed me have, have just done such a spectacular job at growing uh, AUKUS. Uh, it's certainly one of the highest quality educational meetings in arthroplasty in the entire world. I learned so much, but, you know, AUKUS is, and I'm not good on the 501c3 or the 501, you know, the different different types of, you know, corporate structures, but I remember one of the things with AUKUS is they also could play a political role in healthcare. And while the educational content is always first and foremost, uh, you know, the AUKUS plays a very big role in, you know, in Washington, D.C. and in dealing, you know, with our legislators on many, many issues uh, related to joint replacement. And it's, it's a spectacular organization that's doing so many good things. And as it's grown and grown, its research coffers have grown so they can sponsor more research. And uh, it's a premier organization. 
Speaking of good things, Dr. Dennis, you are cited in so many papers, publications from Swanson silicone implants. Uh, I remember those. <laughs> Total elbow, ankle, wrist arthroplasties, and of course, hip and knee. Research is a real passion of yours, isn't it? Well, you know, it really is. And, you know, my my favorite Bible verse is from the book of Luke. And, and to paraphrase it, to whom a lot has been given, a lot is expected. And man, have I been given a lot by all my mentors and, and the opportunities my dad and mom made sure that I had. Um, you know, I kind of I feel that, and I tell every one of my fellows, you just think as you go through your career of what John Charnley has given you or what John Insall has given you <clears throat> to be able to do what you do. And, and because of that, I, and I encourage my fellows, you should always feel an obligation to give back. And I, I always tell my fellows, I don't know if I'm smart enough to give anything back, but I really feel an obligation to try to give back to my field for all that I've been given. And the other thing, my gosh, it makes me a better doctor because, you know, if, if you're going to be on the podium presenting, you've got to be the smartest person in the room on the topic that you're presenting. If you're going to go through the rigors of peer review for an article at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery or the Journal of Arthroplasty, Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research, I'll tell you, that's a heck of a lot of work and the reading that you have to do and all those sort of things. And what does all that do? It makes you a much better doctor. And as do my fellows. I mean, most of the fellows we get are twice as smart as I am. So, man, I really got to got to stay on my toes. And it helps, you know, when that journal of uh, bone and joint surgery comes, boy, I got to make sure I'm reading it. I see a, a lot of people in jobs later in their careers, they get stale. And that includes doctors as well. And what keeps my life and my job so invigorating, I think, is all the academic and the educational parts of, of, of what my job is. And uh, always learning um, and through education, you seeing these fellows who are so talented and how they mature in the operating room over 12 months. And, you know, it's kind of, kind of funny, you know, it comes, you know, towards the last quarter of their fellowship. And I, I'm just smiling there in the operating room saying, you know, they're a real doctor. And, and hopefully I played a little bit of a role in, in getting them there. Speaking of education, doctor, I'd like you to educate me and my audience. I've got a couple clinical questions that are pressing that I'd love your your opinion on. Let's start with patella reef surfacing versus not. I've been pondering that this week. Uh, a friend of mine brought the issue up with me the other day. And is there design considerations on the implant? Is there anatomy considerations? I was thinking about that just yesterday. Does the patient's anatomy put them in a situation where there's point contact that can make it painful? I've run into people who either don't do it or do it all the time, says it works great, or 
lastly, people that have tried it and then revised a bunch of them and don't do it anymore. I, I was just curious what your thoughts were on that topic. Well, let's first talk about design, because I think design does play a very big role. And in the early years of knee arthroplasty, I don't think we had great trochlear designs uh, for not resurfacing. And, and, you know, Leo Whiteside really brought that to our attention. And he said, you have to have a patellar-friendly trochlear groove. And I think there's absolutely no question. And if we look at the knee that I had put in for probably 15 years, the PFC Sigma, you know, that truly was not designed for not resurfacing. And if you look at data, you know, in non-resurface with that design, you know, it wasn't optimal. And, and when we designed the Attune, one of our big focuses was to create that patellar-friendly trochlear groove. And, you know, we looked at all the different designs on the market, and, and it's so obvious because in America, non-resurfacing is becoming more popular. You know, over the last two decades, uh, resurfacing has dominated the American market, yet you go into Europe and certain areas in Asia, you know, non-resurfacing is is widely done. So I do think design plays a very big role. I will tell you, I am still resurfacing about 98% of the patelli that I do, and here is why. There was an article, I believe it was, uh, I believe the author was Han, and out of Korea. And they did a study where they mapped the degree of arthritic change of the patella. And then they correlated it with postoperative peripatellar knee pain. And there was really a very poor correlation. You would assume the worse the arthritis, the worse postoperative pain they would have. And that was not the case. And the other reason that I have have leaned towards a dominance of resurfacing is there are two or three articles that show if you don't resurface the patella the first go-round, and they do get postoperative patellar pain, and you resurface secondarily, the results are not as good. So number one, I don't know exactly who I should not resurface because there's a poor correlation between the visuals I see at the operating room and postoperative anterior knee pain. And I feel a lot of the patellar problems with resurfacing have been related to the fact that the surgeon is not precise in how they do it. And if you think of all of the jigs and instruments we have to cut the tibia properly and cut the femur at the right angles and rotate the femoral component properly, and then kind of the patella in many operating rooms is an afterthought. Well, let's flip it over and whack it off and put a button on it. Well, I think if you resurface it properly, and, and, and what are you 
do. You, number one, you want to duplicate the native patellar thickness. So, you know, it's kind of a remove what you're going to replace. You want to make sure that each facet thickness is the same. And in the native patella, the medial facet is thicker than the lateral. So if you take the same amount of bone off both facets, your remaining patella will be asymmetric. It'll be thicker medially than laterally. And guess what? It's going to tilt. So, you know, if, if you truly do it right and you have to rotate the femoral component properly, you know, all of these factors, I've had very, very good results with resurfacing. And so I continue to do it. And, but I, I know I probably should be non-resurfacing more, but I'm just not exactly sure who those patients are. So that's been my philosophy on resurfacing. Before we leave the patella, I thoroughly enjoyed reading the paper you did with Drs. Faring, Springer, Johnson, and Kim revolving around post-op patella crepitus pain. You won a John Insall Award for that. Congratulations. Uh, any tips you can give to surgeons listening on ways to avoid that? We did a controlled match study where we, with the same implant, took a number of patients that required surgical intervention for patellar crepitus, and we matched them, same implant, age, BMI, you know, gender, with a group that didn't get crepitus. And we tried to look at factors. And I mean, we looked at every x-ray measurement that's ever been done on a, a total knee x-ray. We looked at intraoperative factors. Um, and, and just a few of those are, number one, uh, people that had had previous surgery, particularly arthrotomy, had a higher incidence. People that had lower patellas, so the more patellar Baja ones are, had an increased incidence of crepitus. And also people that had thinner patellar buttons. You know, in the system that we evaluated, the smallest patella was maybe about eight millimeters in thickness, and the largest was 11.3 millimeters of thickness. And interestingly, we rarely saw crepitus in this design, and it was the PFC sigma, and, and the PFC sigma did have, you know, a, a higher incidence of crepitus than desired, and but we rarely ever saw crepitus with a 41 millimeter patella, and I think it's because it was thicker, and it offset the quad tendon from the transition zone from the trochlear, trochlea to the intercondylar box. And if you had a 32 or a 35-sized patella, which were thinner, hmm. that exposed the quad tendon to more irritation, you know, at the top of the intercondylar box. And, and we subsequently did contact mapping studies at the University of Denver. There, we've had a couple other publications. Uh, I've, I've worked with uh, Dr. Paul Rollcutter and Dr. Chad Clary and Clara Fitzpatrick. There's, there, uh, there's a lot of brilliant engineers. And actually, I can walk from my office. It's probably about a 20-minute walk, and I'm in the Department of Engineering at Denver University. So we've had a wonderful relationship, you know, with the engineers there. But uh, 
the we clearly saw that there there was more tendofemoral contact when we used thinner patellar buttons. Been a lot of talk about kinematic alignment these days. I know people that have tried it, know people that uh, kind of do a hybrid, kind of a kinematic light, so to speak. And then there's the mechanical alignment crowd. I was just wondering, what, what are your thoughts on this topic? Well, I'll tell you, I think Steve Howell should be lauded for bringing this concept to us as far as maybe everybody shouldn't have a knee aligned at mechanical zero. Where he does it on every knee he does, varus and valgus, you know, my thoughts are there probably is a select group of patients, particularly the varus knees, that have some congenital tibia vera. In other words, like, uh, you know, we get a long leg pr- uh, film on every patient. And my physician assistant draws out what I call the articulation surface angle. In other words, the the vertical is the is the mechanical axis of the tibia, and then you draw a line across the articular surface. And we try to take into account if if there's bone erosion. But you know, some of those people, and you know, you've ran into maybe when you're in high school, the tailback who was the fastest had those bowed legs. And, you know, those are people, you know, that the articulation surface angle is in a more varus posture. And I truly think that those probably are people that should be done with some form of kinematic alignment. And I do some with my own modification of kinematic alignment, and I will not cut the tibia more than three degrees of varus. I truly do believe that um, if you look at some of Steve's studies, you know, there are some outliers that have the tibia cut, and if I remember, eight or nine degrees of varus. And I think that those, based on my review of the literature, are probably going to fail prematurely. I think, you know, you look at some of Merrill Ritter, Mike Barron's data, you know, they had higher failures with the tibia placed in varus, particularly if combined with obesity and high BMIs. So whenever I do it, my eyes are very well trained to cut the tibia at 90 degrees. They are not well trained to cut it at 87 or three degrees of varus. So whenever I I do my version of kinematic alignment, I always navigate it because I remember the old days of the PCA implant where you were actually, you know, cutting the tibia in three degrees of varus and I believe the femur in eight or nine degrees of algus. And it was a, you know, more of an anatomic alignment type of concept. What happened is, you know, the surgeons tried to cut it at three and they missed by five degrees and it was at at eight degrees and they had premature failures. So, you know, I'll, I'll only cut to a three degree varus amount and, and I gap balance. And so if I cut the tibia at three degrees varus and I want to have a rectangular balance gap, theoretically, I'll internally rotate that femur three degrees. And in my experience, an internally rotated femur of only three degrees, I I have not seen dramatic adverse effect from that. So, you know, I kind of, uh, I think uh, 
Dr. Mark Clatworthy, who's one of New Zealand's leading orthopedic surgeons. He's in Auckland, very good friend of mine. And he coined the term, or at least I heard it from him first, of kinematic alignment with boundaries, you know, where where you're not cutting excessive changes off the mechanical axis. But I think there's something to it. And uh, I think as time goes on, we will better figure out who it truly benefits and who it doesn't. And the other thing is, you know, Steve is a very good surgeon, but, you know, he uses calipers. And, you know, with robotics coming, you know, to the forefront now, I I think that uh, kinematic alignment probably will be able to be done more precisely. And Dick Scott always used to say to me that, you know, total needs a soft tissue operation. You know, I think the robots that are out there, they can cut bone accurately, but are they truly cutting it where it should be cut? And uh, as I'm looking at the future of knee replacement, you know, where my interests are, uh, is you have to have soft tissue information as far as ligament tensions, those sort of things, to then feed the robot, to, and then the robot can execute that accurately. And, you know, that's where I think we need to, you know, to go in, in knee replacement. And um, you have all these ligament tensions, and it's truly a patient that you learn from studying the preoperative soft tissue information that this is really a patient that probably ought to have kinematic alignment. And that's kind of where I, I, I see ourselves going in the, the next five years in, in the arthroplasty. Is there any place for measured resection these days? I'm not a big believer in that because, you know, the, the concept of measured resection is you are using bone landmarks. And I always quote the Kinzel study where they had surgeons go ahead and put metallic markers in the operating room where they thought the epicondyles were. And they were able to, and then they got postoperative CT scans. And they were actually able to hit the transepicondylar axis to within plus or minus three degrees. So a, a six degree range they miss that 25% of the time. So we're not extremely precise at identifying some of those bone landmarks. <clears throat> so, uh, and they're not, you know, in the classic measured resection, you know, the femur first, you know, it's very slick, it's quick. You drill your hole and make your distal cut, and then you put your four and one block on and zip, 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 zip. And you got all your cuts done and then you put in trials and then you kind of go on a wild goose chase trying to balance ligaments to fit the bone cuts that you made. (laughs) Whereas, you know, I think that uh, you really need tensioning of soft tissues and take that information to help determine where you're going to make your bone cuts within reason. Dick Scott and Tom Thornhill, they, they are held in very high esteem by me. And they were kind. They were my two sponsors for the Nice Society. And and while they were kind of measured resectors, uh, like in Dick's operating room, he, he would use measured resection to set all of his blocks, but then he wouldn't make bone cuts 
until he checked the balance of it. So in Dick's operating room, he kind of used measured resection to to start to set things, but then he always checked his gaps secondarily before he made his bone cuts. In my operating room, I tension, but I also draw out the epicondylar line in the AP axis in every every uh, case I do. So I'm kind of using the gap balancing as my primary platform, but I'm secondarily checking where I'm placing that AP cutting block relative to the epicondylar line and the AP axis. So truly what I tell my fellows, you should use every bit of information that you have access to, to make your decisions. You won a Coventry award for your paper on in vivo determination of knee kinematics. I really enjoyed reading that. I would love an explanation as to how within the same implant series, some patients demonstrated a medial pivot while some demonstrated a lateral pivot. I scratched my head when I saw that and I said, I've got to ask Dr. Dennis about that. Well, first of all, a big, big, big part of my academic career is due to Rick Comistec. And if you look at all of these fluoroscopic kinematic papers that I've published, it's Dennis and Comistec or Comistec and Dennis and Rick and I uh, to this day, continue to work together. Uh, he just sent me another manuscript this morning that I, I've, I've got to edit. Um, and and I think Rick is, is the brightest orthopedic engineer that I've ever encountered. And I certainly want to laud him for playing a very, very big role in, in my career uh, because of the work that the two of us have done together. But you know, we primarily have looked at four different parameters in kinematics. We've looked at AP translation of the femur on the tibia. We've looked at axial rotation uh, of the femur versus tibia. We've looked at femoral condylar liftoff, which is essentially coronal plane instability. You know, uh, we were the first to describe that, and there was a very, very well-known, respected orthopedic engineer, and I was at a meeting, and he went ahead and said, you know, weight-bearing deep knee bend with all the body loads applied, you can't have liftoff. Well, Rick and I had seen it visually in fluoroscopy, and it took a while for people to realize how much liftoff occurred. And and going to the measured resection, we have an article uh, and we looked at measured resection in cruciate retaining and cruciate substituting. And the liftoff incidence was about 40 to 60%. And in a gap balancing where you're pre-tensioning, liftoff greater than a millimeter was zero. So, um, but in all of our fluoroscopic studies, and I, I think we have fluoroed, I, I don't know what our latest number is, but I, I think it's approaching 3,000 knees uh, over the last 25 years. The kinematic variation from patient to patient done by even the same surgeon using the same technique, you are right. We see some people that rotate in the right direction, kind of what's called the screw home mechanism, and some that rotate in the wrong direction. We see people that some have progressive poster femoral rollback and others that paradoxically slide forward. 
And I think uh, there are many factors that feed into these kinematic abnormalities. I think design of the implant plays a role. I think surgical technique plays a role. And I truly think the anatomy of the patient and how they walk plays a role. You know, one of the things I know that that in the email you sent me is, you know, kind of where we may be going in the future. And I kind of think we're going towards more individualized customization for each patient. Like, should I do your knee with kinematic alignment or not? Or should you get this implant or should you get that implant? And when I was president of the Knee Society, you're at the, at the meeting at our academy, you're always uh, get to give a presidential address. And, and way back in, what was that, 08 or 09, you know, where I felt the future and where I'd like to get to is if I'm going to do your total knee, we do some type of preoperative weight-bearing dynamic analysis, you know, and probably more sophisticated than gate lab analysis, but where we can analyze your knee, we watch how you walk, we look at your ligament tensions, maybe, you know, we run it through uh, Rick Comastek's mathematical modeling and get an idea of the quad torques, and then that information is then fed into your preoperative planning and eventually to the robot to have, have you execute it. But, but where you're gathering this preoperative dynamic weight bearing information and then utilizing that uh, to determine how you're going to do that individualized patient's knee replacement. That's a great segue, doctor, because I was fascinated with your paper detailing the need for safe zones and that whole preoperative analysis on the hip side. I was on Twitter and an orthopedic surgeon put a meme out there regarding the hip-spine relationship and it said, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. You did an an AUKUS presentation entitled The Hip-Spine Relationship Made Easy, so I figured you're the best person to address her cry for help and a lot of people listening to the show that are kind of in the dark on this whole thing and it seems complicated but being able to analyze a patient in the seated position and the standing position and then calculate these angles to help you better position your cup so thanks for asking me that question because i'll tell you uh in in my research world today what excites me more than anything is is trying to better understand how spinal pelvic motion patterns affect three-dimensional cup position in hip replacement. And I will tell you, it's, I'm not sure we have made it easy. I think we have made it easier. But when I got uh, tuned into this was, oh, back in about 2015, and I was lecturing in Australia, and one of my best orthopedic friends, Dr. Andrew Shimon from Melbourne, And uh, for anyone who wants to try to learn more, you just PubMed Shimon, um, and he has made great contributions. And he was doing this way back in, in, you know, 2014, 15, in that era. And some of that technology, at least through industry, was, you know, brought to America. Uh, I got tuned into it in about 2017. But 
when I tried to start to learn about it back in, in 15, 16, when I'd read those articles, I'll tell you, I, I could not understand them. And uh, Jean-Yves Lazanac, he's a Parisian, has, has done some fabulous work in this area. And I remember the first time I heard him lecture, I was, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was lost. And I think what has happened is we've really learned what parameters are the most important. And you know, there's some articles and you look at the diagram of all the angles they measured and there's probably 10 different angles and it's hard to put it together. Um, and, and I think people like Andrew Shimon, Jonathan Vigdorchek, who's at HSS in New York, one of the brightest lights in, in the spinal pelvic arena, have really tried to make it easier. And like every patient that I do a hip replacement on gets three lateral spinal pelvic x-ray standing flexed forward uh, as far as they can and then one with their contralateral leg up and then a CT scan. And I know that's more radiation and, and that sort of thing, but I truly believe the information that I am given, again, I'm customizing cup position because you know, the Lewinic safe zone, we were all taught to put the cup in the Lewinic safe zone, which is abduction of about 40 degrees and uh, anaversion of around 15 degrees, plus or minus 10. And that's based on an article in JBGS in 1978. And, and yet everybody uh, was taught how to do it that way. And, and uh, about uh, five years ago, Matt Abdel and colleagues at Mayo Clinic took that to task, and they they looked at their database of nearly 10,000 hip replacements, and I think their dislocation rate in the whole registry was like 1.7%, and so not very much, but 1.7% of 10,000 is a substantial number of patients, and 58% of those who dislocated had their cup in the Lewinick safe zone. So... What we have learned from all of that is we need individualized safe zones. And based on your spinal pelvic mobility patterns, where I would put your cup is maybe different than where I would put your wife's cup or your friend's cup. And by doing this analysis preoperatively, you you truly and there there are you can do it on your own or uh, there's a commercially available uh, analysis that I utilize because they're really experts and they can do their measurements more accurately than I can. And so, you know, I'm individualizing. And then the other thing that we have to do to get better at hip replacement is assuming that I know the ideal individualized target, if I can't hit the target in the operating room, it that data is worthless. And there was an article by Callanan out of Harvard. And Harvard has been a mecca of, of hip replacement learning for over 30 years. And, and they reported on 18 total hips done at Harvard. And how often did they precisely hit the, the abduction inclination target and the anaversion target both, hitting both targets precisely? Hmm. Only 50% of the time. 
So I, I truly think this spinal pelvic arena is the next paradigm shift in hip replacement. You know, in my career, what are some of the big changes? You know, we went from cemented to cementless. We've dramatically improved polyethylene and improved our bearing surfaces. You know, fixation is no longer a big issue for somebody probably 50 years of age. Wear is probably not a great issue. So what do we have to do to get better? We've got to make me, the surgeon, better at putting it in. And I think the concept is we need to do these analyses to develop individualized patient targets. And then we have to have some type of toy that helps the surgeon hit that target. And that can be a robot. That can be a patient-specific custom guide that is made, which is what I am currently doing. And uh, there are already studies going on in Australia where uh, I'll be doing augmented reality as my toy to help me hit that desired target. But I am fascinated by all of this, and and it isn't as hard to understand. Uh, you know what what angles do I measure? You know I I measure the cob angles in standing and flex seated, so I know exactly how flexible the lumbar spine is. I measure sacral slope. I measure pelvic incidence, and I measure pelvic tilt, and boy, just having that information, you can truly identify the patient preoperatively who's a high-risk candidate. And uh, like now, should I put a dual mobility in everyone? Well, dual mobilities cost a heck of a lot of money. They have their own set of complications. So truly what we need is criteria of the high-risk patient that I'm going to place a dual mobility as a primary. And that's how my practice is. I really encourage every, every surgeon to pay as much attention as they can. And the learning curve is not easy. I think it is easier, but I promise someone of my mentality has learned it pretty well, so anybody can. Well, speaking of toys, I got to compliment you, sir. The the attuned knee, I, I know you had a lot to do with that project. I love the design aesthetic. It's always nice to see a attention paid to the look of these instrument sets. Well done. A lot of people deserve a lot of credit. You know, there there were, uh, this, this was a team of 35 surgeons, uh, both U.S., European, Asian, that were involved in this effort. And, uh, and the Attune was not a take Sigma and make a few changes and call and give it a new name. It was a totally redesigned from scratch. And I believe we had our first meeting in July of 06. And I put my first one in in March of 2012. So, you know, it was six years of, of you know, whether whether we got it right or perfect or not perfect, you certainly can debate. But I'll tell you, I don't think uh, in my career, I have not, I've been involved in a lot of design projects and nothing could even come close to the sophistication of research that 
you know, went into that design. And people were divided into teams. And then there was the revision team, but there was also the instrument team. And their primary focus was to develop the surgical technique pathways and the instruments that are needed to implant it properly. And the revision team worked obviously on the revision parts and the primary team. And I don't want to take a lot of credit because boy, there, and that it, it was so intellectually stimulating to be able to sit at the design room with Chip Ranawat and, and Tom Thornhill and Dick Scott and Tom Fairing and David Barrett in England and Dan Barry and Rob Truesdale. And I know I'm leaving some out here. I mean, because, you know, I hopefully contributed my share to it. But man, did I learn a lot due to the wealth of wisdom that was shared at those design meetings. You said you started out in central uh, sterile washing instruments. I saw the attuned revision instruments in central sterile not too long ago. And uh I know you were part of that project, bringing that forward as well, and well done. I mean, those instruments were very, very slick. You know, surgeons do revisions in different ways. There's different methodologies, and the, the where the revision and the instrument teams should really be lauded is they really tried to have instruments that allowed the surgeon to choose the way they wanted to do the knee replacement. You know, whether you want to be a cut through trial person or a not cut through, you wanted a tensioning type of gap balancing methodology. Uh, the philosophy was not to dictate how the knee had to be implanted, but that's a, an individualized surgeon decision. But what, what our job was is to provide them with instruments that would support the method that they, they desire and are best at. Dr. Dennis, you presented in Spain, China, Japan, Israel, South Africa, Vienna, Rosemont, Illinois. <laughs> uh, any place stand out particularly to you as uh, you've got to go this to this place? Well, I'm a three million mile flyer with United, so <laughs> I have been in the air a fair bit. Wow. Um, I'll tell you, it's I, I kind of like the Bavarian area of Europe. I'm fascinated uh, with Asia, uh, you know, the, some of the, the beauty and the kindness of the, of the Thai people, um, you know, that's, that's a favorite area, you know, for me, but I don't think I've ever been anywhere that I, I'd badmouth because uh, I, <clears throat> I've enjoyed all my travel and, you know, in America, I, I, I sense, Kevin, just a, a little bit of a Southern drawl in your voice. <laughs> yes. And, you know, maybe we don't have people in Denver that talk exactly like people in Georgia. But, you know, we all speak the same language and we kind of all live in the, you know, the same country. And, you know, you can drive 500 miles in America and, you know, the culture is going to be pretty similar. Maybe over the last year, it isn't with all of our political things. But, you know, whereas you can be in Europe and you can drive 50 kilometers and you're in a totally different culture with a different language. And one of the things all of my travel has has taught me is, number one, as Archie Bunker used to say, the U.S. of A. is the best place ever. And I'm so proud of my country. 
I've also learned, I think, that the USA way is not the only way. And you see how things are in different countries. And I think it's it's changed how I think and and open my mind to different cultures and the benefits and, and or the, the negative uh, aspects of different cultures. What do you want your legacy to be? Number one, I, I hope my legacy is that I was a a really good, kind, compassionate doctor who, who gave his very best to take good care of patients. I hope I'll go down as a good surgical technician. Uh, that's something that I, I really focus on and, and with our fellows really, really try to drive. And um, someone who tried to, you know, live his life giving back due to all the blessings that he has received. You know, this is the part of the show where we come to you for advice, Doctor. I, I know you love working with fellows and you love mentoring. Do you have any sage words of wisdom for surgeons that listen to the show that are at uh, the front end of their career? I would heavily encourage them to keep track of their data. Whether you're ever going to publish a paper or not, you need to always self-analyze. I tell my fellows that you should be your severest critic throughout your entire career. And if you don't keep track of your data, you often don't really know how well you're doing. And uh, obviously, we've got a big database, and I can walk down the hall and ask Roseanne Johnson, our lead research person, you know, what's my dislocation rate been, you know, the last three years, or what's my infection rates? And, and a lot of times when I've looked at my data, sometimes I was not doing as well as I thought. And other times I was actually doing better than what I thought. So I would, to, to the younger surgeons, keep track of your data. And there are data collection systems out there that are not totally uh, too laborious or too much money uh, that you can get. So I really would recommend that they uh, uh, continually collect their data. Number two, I would encourage young surgeons to set aside a part of every week that is dedicated to reading and learning. And, you know, we have had fellows that have come through our program and in a year end up 20 publications. They were fabulous. They were great researchers and they wanted to continue that and they loved it. But they don't go out and dedicate that time and then they get swallowed up by the demands of their practice. And <clears throat> then they become academically nonproductive. And to really learn and be an up-to-date surgeon at 60, you know, you have to continue to learn and read. And throughout my career, particularly when my children were young, every Tuesday night, I dedicated that I stayed at the office. And the reason I did that is hopefully on Monday, Wednesday, and the other days of the week, I could be home to have dinner with my children and my wife. But I'd often stay at my office until midnight. And I'll tell you, from five o'clock till seven hours doing that, 
peace and quiet, nobody in your office, holy mackerel, you, you really can get a lot accomplished. And I'm not a great morning person, but for those that are, set one morning a week that you're going to be at the office at 4 a.m. And from 4 till 7 a.m., you are going to read and learn. And I tell my fellows is you set up your research time, and that's the first thing that goes on your weekly schedule. And then you figure out when to take care of patients and when to operate. But make that time sacred. Dr. Dennis, we have a lot of reps that listen to this program. Their laser pointers are down and they are listening. What advice would you give them uh, about uh, what does it mean to be best in class as a rep, so to speak? I always encourage encourage reps because they work with lots of doctors and they know the ones that they have the highest respect for. And uh, to try to latch on to those surgeons because you know, they really can learn a lot from them. And, and I mean, my great reps are the, and I tell you, I am blessed with them and, but I wasn't always blessed with them is to really know your product because surgeons are very busy. They got a lot on their mind. And for example, okay, if I put a 32 millimeter head in this 50 millimeter cup, how many millimeters of polyethylene do I get? You know, questions like that. And shoot, I, you know, you use different products. You can't remember everything, but I want to have a rep that knows all of that information. And if I ask a question and they can't answer it within 24 hours, they're back emailing me or whatever to provide me the information that I need. But I think that the biggest part of being a great rep is really knowing your product. Before we close up shop, I wanted to give you an opportunity. Is there any projects you have going on right now that you would like uh, my audience to know about? You know, we're, we're doing uh, a, a lot of uh, research. I've hooked up with Dr. Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley and Dr. Michael Bade at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. They're PhDs in physical therapy. We have a lot of research going on there. How can we rehab our patients, make their rehab uh, easier and quicker? That's, you know, a big area. Another big area that I'm very interested in, and I am on the board, uh, of Joint View, uh, which is... uh, Rick Kamastek is one of the principal starters with Muhammad Mahfouz and Ray Wazlewski. And it is a use of uh, ultrasound technology that can be used to make us better surgeons. You know, through ultrasound, being radiation-free, very inexpensive technology, you can create three-dimensional bone models that are as precise as you get from a CAT scan through ultrasound, you can identify ligaments and all of this information that, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing uh, a lot of my total knees where they're going to be evaluated with this product preoperatively. And I'll have three-dimensional models of their bones within 
10 to 12 minutes after the ultrasound is completed, help me with implant sizing. I'll know where all of my ligament attachments are, all of those sort of things, uh, including ligamentous tensioning. And I'll know that on the front end that can help me execute better in the operating room. So that is a a very, very big interest of mine. Uh, We've been working on that for, you know, a number of years. I think Rick started looking at all of this about 10 years ago. And it's now getting to the point where I, uh, it, it, it's coming to commercialization. And I think it truly could, could revolutionize things. Um, you know, ultrasound, you can create these small units that our military could carry. And if, and if you're a medic and somebody's blown up in the field, boy, you've got this little thing in your backpack and you can ultrasound on the limb and see exactly where the fractures are right while they lay. There's so, so much uh, that ultrasound technology can provide. So I'm pretty excited about that. Joint view. And I believe that's spelled J-O-I-N-T-V-U-E, correct? That is correct. That is correct. I read a great commentary on that Luke verse you were talking about, to whom much is given, much will be required. And it said, if we have been blessed with talents, wealth, knowledge, time, and the like, it is expected that we benefit others. And Dr. Dennis, you have done just that. You have benefited so many. Uh, I'm very humbled to have had you on the show to share your story. You're one of the greats. I want to wish you good help. And again, many thanks. I don't know about y'all, but that was quite a Christmas gift to find under the tree this season, an interview with the legendary Dr. Doug Dennis. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with all of us. One thing that he said that really stuck out to me is that you can't get to the moon unless you hop into the spaceship first. So hold that thought, and now we're going to go to a story that Sounds completely unrelated, but it has everything to do with this. Just yesterday, I was going south on a very busy road, and the northbound traffic was stopped because of a stoplight. And I was there with my signal on, and a very kind gentleman decided to cut me some slack and waved me in front of him so I could cross the intersection. I got halfway across in front of him, And his light turned green again. And then he starts honking his horn at me. The invitation had been officially revoked because he had to wait an extra two seconds now. So what's the point? Well, the point is that spaceship that's going to take you to the moon is the USS Giving. And... It will cost you something. It's not giving if it doesn't cost you anything. That gentleman that was giving me entree across that intersection, the moment that it inconvenienced him, then he pulled back that gift. So it was never a gift to begin with. So as we reflect upon the incredible career of Dr. Dennis, I just love some of the comments he was making about paying it back and all these things took time spending hours with fellows after work you know you're tired you want to go home again giving in the truest sense of the word ultimately costs you something and that's where you lose people sometimes they don't want to do anything that's going to cost them but they still want to say i gave you something but it just doesn't work that way so as we enter into this season of giving 
And, you know, we've talked a lot about giving this year. Here's a real live case example. I had one nurse many years ago in particular that was really hard to work with, notoriously so. And nobody could seem to open up the keys to her heart. And I just decided, you know, not because I'm going to get anything out of it. I'm just going to give to her. I picked up trash. I changed trash bags during the case. I helped her put the room together at the end. I even mopped the floor. Anything that I could do to help her. Push the instruments down to Central Sterile. And you know what? After a month of that, something broke. And she started reaching out to me and started helping me on some projects that I had going on. And I thought, wow, I didn't do any of that stuff to get anything from her. Just the simple act of giving, getting on that USS giving. And I found myself a month later at the moon. Let's keep that on our radar as we're around family and friends. You know, for a lot of people, Christmas is a very difficult time of year. And if you know one of those people, do something about it. Give. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a phone call with that person you really don't want to talk to. It's going to cost spending time with people that are challenging to be around. I could go on and on. It costs you something. But you know what? That's the only way to the moon. I want to say a special thank you to all of you listening that have given of your time throughout this year. Can you believe we're on our 45th episode? Wow. I'm so thankful for you giving of your time to listen. That's like 40 hours of your life you're never going to get back. It's been an honor and a pleasure creating this content for you. And I'll say it again. You are the best of the best. So warmest Christmas wishes to all of you from all of us here at Device Nation. As we enter this holiday season, let's all remember to get into that spaceship. Let's give freely, especially when it costs us something, like two seconds of our time at a light. And let's enjoy that trip to the moon together. <laughs>